It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Hi friends and welcome to Just a Moment. I can't imagine the courage it would take to walk into a hospital knowing you're there to willingly let someone cut off your arm. My guest today found that courage and faced that fear, knowing it would save her life, and also knowing her life was about to change forever. For Amy Reamer, navigating that moment has been a journey of faith. There are a lot of twists and turns in this story. You're going to listen to this conversation and you're going to think, enough already, how much hardship can one person take? But as you'll see, Sometimes our tragedies build strength and prepare us for what we might think is impossible. That's why we start this conversation early in Amy's life and unfold it moment by moment. I grew up in Liberty Center. Uh, I moved, we moved there when I was five. So right before I started kindergarten and we lived on like 20 acres out in the country, a big apple orchard. And at the time my parents actually worked the apple orchard and we made cider and we sold apples and I did I had lots of nights doing my homework on a trailer while my parents were pruning the trees and I was riding around doing my homework out in the orchard and we rode four-wheelers and snowmobiles and just so much fun we had a lot of fun growing up there you met your husband Ben pretty early in your life. You guys were high school sweethearts. Yeah, we started um, dating when I was still in high school. He was in high school, but he went to Swanton and I was in Liberty Center. At the time, it was a little bit um, strange because I was a senior and he was a freshman, but I just kept thinking, you know, later in our life, this age difference isn't going to matter. And I'm so thankful that I I took the leap and, you know, forgot about our age because I couldn't, I couldn't be doing this life without him. So he's definitely was my soulmate. That's for sure. Did you know that you wanted to start a family kind of right away? Was that your plan? We wanted to start a family right away. Um, and we always knew we wanted four kids. We both agreed with, with that. I have three sisters. So there's four of us. He has three sisters. There's four of them. And we felt like that was a good number for us. So we were ready to start right away. And you were blessed with a pregnancy right away. A little less than a year. We found out we were pregnant with our first daughter. We found out that it was a girl pretty early on. So we were super excited about that and just excited to start our family. And you had a moment in that pregnancy where things changed for you. Tell me about that. Yeah. So actually one of my best friends uh, was my ultrasound technician and she did, you know, my regular 20 week ultrasound that everyone has. And I could just tell on her face, like something wasn't right. And, you know, I just was like, 
give it to me straight. Like, you know, you're, we're my best friend in the world. Like, I don't want to hear this from anyone else. Like what is going on? Um, and she, you know, she didn't know anything for sure, but she just said, there's some things that I'm seeing that I think you need to have a more in-depth ultrasound to figure out what it is. Um, there were some things and, you know, some markers that at the time, you know, possibly could identify that, um, our daughter had down syndrome, but it wasn't enough for us to know for sure. Um, so we did go to, uh, like the maternal fetal medicine and we got a more in-depth ultrasound. And then we ended up having an amniocentesis to find out, um, not because it would have changed anything, but we are the type of people that when we go in, we go all in. And so we want to know, and we wanted to know um, exactly what we were um, getting into and what we were going to be facing. So we had an amniocentesis and actually on my mom's uh, birthday, we is that's the day that we found out that she did have Down syndrome. You know, it takes a little while. I think anyone will tell you that there is like a period of shock and you know, what is my life going to look like? And, and, you know, I thought about every moment of her life. I thought about her younger years. I thought about her high school. I thought about, you know, would she get married? And I thought about, would she live with us forever? Would she be independent? I thought about all of those things um, pretty quickly after you hear the word Down syndrome. So it took me a couple of weeks. And then I was like, let's do this. Like, I'm excited. This, like, it's not why does she have Down syndrome? But more, I shifted my thinking to we were chosen. Like we were chosen to be her parents. You know, God chose us because he knows that we can give her the best life possible. So my husband and I were all in at that point. Our families were all in. We were so excited. So by the time she was born, Down syndrome wasn't even a part of it. It was, it was not who she was. It was you know, a diagnosis that she had, but it definitely wasn't who she was. And we were so excited to just embark on this journey with her because we knew it would be a journey. And so we were so ecstatic and she was born and she was perfect and she was beautiful. And my entire family was there. My husband's entire family was there. We're a little over the top on uh, with births, but everyone was so excited to meet her and to see her and to hold her and kiss her. We named her Remington Lynn and we called her Remy. So Remy Reamer. And, and yeah, so we brought her home and she, we were home for only about two or three days. Um, and then we started to notice that she wasn't um, doing well and she wasn't eating well. And so we called the doctor and um, he decided, you know, just bring her in. Let's uh, make sure she doesn't have jaundice. So they ran some tests. They sent some um, samples down to Cincinnati. So we had to wait several days to kind of figure out what was going on. And a couple days after we were, she was admitted, we found out that she had something called Hirschsprung's disease. And that is basically when the nerve endings don't attach to the colon. Um, and so basically what happens is there's no sensation and it's hard, it's difficult for babies to have stool because they don't have the sensation. And so that's why she wasn't um, eating because it, everything was sort of getting backed up. The correction for that was surgery. Yeah. And really pretty, a pretty basic surgery. So they talked to us about what's called a pull through surgery. Um, basically, um, they pull out the part that's not working and we have a lot of extra intestines and colon and all of that. So, um, they cut it off, sew it back up and everything 
you know, we were told she was going to be okay. It was going to be a simple surgery. We'd go home a couple days after that and we could start our life again, you know, back at home with her. And what happened? Uh, she came out of surgery and she was sort of having trouble holding her, her like breathing. And I, I could tell when I was holding her in recovery that something was going on. Um, and I, I didn't know what it was. We, you know, we told the nurses and we said, you know, she's seems to be like holding her breath and she's not able to breathe. And they, you know, reassured us that that was common after surgery. So they took her up to ICU just to watch her and monitor because of the, you know, weird breathing pattern that she had. And the next 12 hours, um, probably one of the hardest 12 hours of my life. I've had a lot of hard 12 hours, but that was one of them. Um, cause I just watched her go downhill quickly. It's like one of those moments where you realize as a parent, you can't fix everything for your child. And so, um, they ended up taking her back into surgery the next morning. She ended up being septic and she ended up having a lot of other issues that sort of snowballed from that surgery. And I think she was very sick going into that surgery. And I, I just think her body couldn't handle that surgery at that time. Your expectation, though, was that you were taking her to the hospital and you were going to be bringing her home at some point after they figured out why she wasn't eating properly and why she wasn't able to go to the, the bathroom properly. And so you leave the hospital after these weeks of being there with her and you are empty handed. You know, my parents and my um, husband's parents still talk about the moment where they saw us walking down the hallway, leaving the hospital empty handed. You don't ever want to be that person. You don't ever want to see your child or your sister or your brother or your friend um, in that moment because it's it, it was heartbreaking. And I felt at that point, like, how am I going to go on? Like, I just had a baby and 24 days later, she's gone. How did you go on? What, how, how, how did you get through that terrible grief, Amy? Well, for one, it takes time, a lot of time. And I gave myself that time. I did not, you know, I was on maternity leave for having a baby and I took the entire 12 weeks of my maternity leave and I, I grieved. I went through every grieving, uh, every phase of the grieving process. And uh, my husband and I met with our pastor soon after Remy passed away and he told us, um, basically, you know, a lot of marriages fail. And when you lose a child, your statistic goes even higher. And he just looked us in the eyes and said, don't be a statistic, beat it, figure, you know, tell yourselves right now, you are going to come closer together, not farther apart from this and know that you're going to be in different stages of grief at different times. And that's okay. You have to acknowledge that now so that when you're in that moment and, and one of you is in the anger phase and one of you is in the, I don't know the actual names, but one of you is, you know, in the acceptance stage, you're not, you know, um, angry at each other because you're not seeing eye to eye at that point. And that was huge for us. That was, I have given that advice to so many couples who have lost babies and even other, you know, tragedies in their life. I've passed that advice on to so many people because that got us through. We grieved. We did not grieve the same way. We were never in the same stage of grief at the same time, but we supported each other no matter what stage we were in. I gave myself time. 
Um, and you know, I leaned on God, I have a strong faith and I know that I would not have gotten through that time had I not had hope for the future. And I held on to that hope of, and I still hold on to that hope of seeing her again someday in heaven. And my family and my friends, they supported us through every you know step of the way, every day, every minute, sometimes. Um, you know, they, they carried us through and they helped us lean on to lean into our faith and really rely on that to get through that time. Were you nervous about trying again to have another child after that, Amy? I wasn't. Um, when she passed away, there was a moment where I looked at my husband and I said, we're having lots of babies. Like we're just going to have lots of babies. Like I, this is not going to stop us from having a family. Uh, you know, we want to be parents and this isn't going to hold us back. So we got pregnant a couple months after Remy passed away and we were again, so excited. It was that initial excitement. And, um, I had a really early miscarriage with that pregnancy. And I think that's where kind of the fear set in like, oh my goodness, what if I can't have my own children? What if I can't carry my own babies? Because now I've had one I carried to full term. She passed away. Now I, we got pregnant again and now I've had a, a, a miscarriage. So what does this mean for us? Were you, did you have to give yourself time again to try again? Were the doctors telling you go ahead and try again? What was your mindset there? As crazy as it sounds, we were ready to just try again. And again, we were really excited about having a family and we didn't want to stop that because of these roadblocks. And um, you know, I've learned that they aren't actually roadblocks, but they're more detours. And so it's things in your life that you find along the way and detours that you have to take from what you thought the route was, uh, but they're not roadblocks. They're not something that stops you. Um, you can get around them and there's other ways to achieve your dreams or, you know, start your family if, if that's your dream, whatever it may be. So we just, we tried again. As soon as the doctors gave us the go ahead, we tried again and we did get pregnant pretty quickly the third time. Um, and I was really thankful for that because uh, that pregnancy went really well and I carried her to full term and she was born very healthy and we needed that. We needed that to not, not replace Remy in any way, but to just um, have some joy in our lives. We were like ready to be parents and she, you know, brought joy to our lives. And again, it didn't replace anything and it didn't take away anything that we had been through, but it brought joy. Babies can't help it. They do that for us, right? Right. And there was a moment where Ben and I were laying in the hospital bed and we were laying in the hospital bed together and Bela was sleeping on my chest and it was, I think she was one day old and the doctor came in and, and Ben and I were both just sobbing and the doctor came in and she's like, oh my goodness, like what's going on? Like, you know, how can I help you? What do you need? And I'm like, these are tears of joy. Like, and I kind of like told her our whole story cause it was not my regular doctor. And, you know, before you know it, she was sobbing as well. And I, you know, we just said, we have prayed for this moment for so long and, you know, she's here and she's healthy and there's no reason for us to think that she's not going to live a very long, healthy life. And, you know, it was like, it was, we were remembering Remy and we were, um, you know, thinking of her at one day old and we had no idea what 
was going to, you know, what was about to happen with her life. Um, but at the same time, we were just rejoicing in the fact that we had a child and she was healthy and she was here, you know, and she was going to go home with us like that was a happy moment. So you were dreaming of four babies, two, three, and four came afterward. Our son was born about two years after that, a little less than two years after that. And he has a story of his own. He, we found out when we were pregnant that he, um, I contracted a virus called cytomegalovirus, which is not a big deal in adults. Usually it's just like a cold, but when you're pregnant, you can pass it on to your fetus and it can be fatal and um, really devastating. So we found out that I passed along the CMV virus to him. And that was a long pregnancy. We had a lot of um, trial medicines and different tests and ultrasounds to kind of figure out what was going on with him. And he was born uh, when Bela was a little, almost two. And he was born with congenital CMV. And when he was born, they, you know, they thought, oh, he looks so good, this and that. But we had, we had been watching um, these ventricles in his brain and they had get been getting bigger and bigger and they were enlarged. And so my husband and I kind of said, you know, even though he looks great, we want to, we want a scan of his brain because that is why you induced me. That is what we've been watching for, you know, 20 weeks. So they did um, an ultrasound of his brain and then they did an MRI of his brain. And basically they sat us down and said, you know, he has severe brain damage and you need to um, prepare yourselves because this could be bad. And my husband and I were like, just tell us what you're trying to say. Like, are you saying that like, we already had a baby die in our arms. Like, are you saying that he's, he could die? And the doctor said, yeah, I don't know if, if he's going to make it and talk about like a roller coaster of emotions, right? Like, so we lost Remy and then we have this beautiful baby and she's healthy and everything's great. And then we have this a next baby and you tell us that he might not even live. And it was literally a shocking moment of like, what is happening? <laughs> like, what is happening to us? What is happening in our lives? Like, you know, you have to be joking. And he ended up going to the ICU. He ended up going to the NICU and he had some um, really strong medicine, almost like a chemo medicine uh, that was supposed to help him. Uh, basically, if he w- got a hearing loss, it was supposed to help decrease the severity of the hearing loss because hearing loss is one of the um, big uh, side effects of this uh, CMV virus. And they told us there, like, he may never walk, he may never talk, he may never um, eat on his own. Basically, like, go home and love on him. You know, we don't know. We don't know what he's going to be like. And my husband and I just looked at each other and we said, mm mm. Like we're not just going to go home and love on him. Like we are going to push him and he's going to be the best. His name is Benzin. He's going to be the best Benzin that he can be. And whatever that is, we're good with that, but we're going to help him be the best that he can be. So fast forward a few years, he is uh, walking, talking, eating miracle. Um, He has some right-sided weakness and he struggles, definitely struggles with certain tasks, um, fine motor tasks, probably the most. Um, but he is amazing and he has the biggest, brightest personality you will ever meet in an eight-year-old boy. 
and he loves life and everywhere he goes, people just fall in love with him because he is just literally a ray of sunshine in the room and you can't help, but he, he will come up and he'll get to know you and he, you will know everything about him. And he has definitely been a huge blessing in our lives. After all of that heartache, here are two miracles that have come along in your life. And then you have two more. Yes. So we had another daughter after Benzin and she was born very healthy. Everything was great. And then we had another son. Our last son was uh, three days overdue. And I woke my husband up in the middle of the night and I said, we need to go to the hospital. And I made it to the bathroom right before our garage door. And I never made it out of there. He was born on my bathroom floor. So that was quite the story to tell and quite an adventure in the middle of the night. Uh, Looking back, I would relive that moment over and over and over. There was so much like fear, but so much excitement. And uh, my mother-in-law came. She was the only one there besides my husband. And she you know, basically hopped over me and helped deliver him right on my bathroom floor. That is a crazy story, Amy. But here you are now with these four beautiful, healthy children. And I know you're feeling like, okay, maybe the heartache is behind us. And here we have these beautiful kids and our dream of having this large family has come to fruition for us. And then you had another moment. Yeah, probably. I know it's crazy to say, and I don't know if you can rate them, right? But probably the biggest, if not one of, if not one of the biggest moments of my life. And so two months after our son, our last son was born, um, I had a lump in my left upper arm and they had been watching it, but it um, didn't seem to be anything that was too concerning. But um, about two months after my son was born, we decided to do an MRI just to be sure that it was nothing. And I had heard those words before several times in my life. It's probably not Down syndrome, but let's just check. It's probably not CMB, but let's just check. So I had a bad feeling because I had heard those words before. It's probably nothing, but let's just check. So they did um, an MRI, which was um, very concerning from what they saw. So they decided to do a biopsy of it to find out for sure what it was. And, um, ironically on my first daughter, Remy's birthday, what would have been her birthday? Um, that was the day that my husband actually, my my husband actually got the news and he was the one that delivered the news to me just because of some logistics. Um, and so he walked in the door and we were planning to do a little celebration for her birthday that day. And instead he, I knew the second he walked in the door. I could tell on his face, um, but I didn't want to believe it. And so I just said, what, you know, what, what, what do you have to tell me? And he just said, it's cancer. And I was like, you're kidding. Like, I actually like kind of giggled and said, you're joking. Like you're lying. And he's like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, yes, you're lying. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then it hits you, right? Like this is, this isn't someone else's story. Now this is my story. Like, you know, I, I, everyone probably knows someone or multiple people who have battled cancer, but when those words are being said about yourself, it's a feeling that you really can't describe to someone unless they've been through that. And they've heard those words, everything like goes, like everything goes silent around you. And you're in this moment with your own thoughts and you 
for me, I thought of every single moment of my life for the rest of my life and, and how much stuff was in question. And you immediately think, am I going to live? Am I going to see my kids next birthday? Am I going to celebrate any more Christmases? Am I going to see them graduate? Am I going to see them get married? Am I going to be a grandma? Like, am I going to make it to any of those times in my life? All of that goes through your head and honestly, probably a minute, like every thought that you could possibly imagine flies through your head. And you can't, I I really felt like I couldn't breathe in that moment. I felt like what is, again, what is happening and like, oh my gosh, my, how much my life just shifted in the two words, it's cancer. How old were you? 37. Previously, when you were hearing some of these other things, you know, you're kind of being the pragmatic mom, you know, the things that you went through with your children and you're trying to think to yourself, you know, okay, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, you know, just kind of like moms do taking charge and get things done. In this moment, you had to be thinking of the kids in a much different way. You have these four little children now who are depending on you. And I know that had to be the first thing in your mind. Absolutely. You know, they, um, I found out that same day that it was a stage three cancer. So it was, um, and it was a, it's called myxofibrosarcoma. It's a very rare soft tissue sarcoma. So it was in the soft tissue in the, in my deltoid muscle of my arm. Um, but stage three out of stage, out of four stages of that kind of cancer, um, not good. And I started looking and I started reading right away, trying to read about it. And I immediately said, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not going to sit and read about what percentage of a chance I have to live. I have to focus and I have to focus on my kids and I have to focus on being here for them. And, and I immediately, um, you know, we talked about this. I immediately wrote off my hair. I'm like, I'm going to go through chemo. I, I don't care about my hair. I don't care about my arm. I don't care if you have to cut it off. I am going to live. I am going to be their mom and I'm going to be there for them. And I'm going to fight as hard as I've ever fought for something in my life to just live. That is all, it's all I was focused on, honestly, is staying alive. And so initially you had to have surgery and you went through some treatment, right? Yeah. So I ended up um, going to a sarcoma, specialized sarcoma team. And so they set me up with a treatment plan. So I went through um, four rounds of chemotherapy. Each round was 21 days. And during that time I I did lose my hair, um, but I made it a fun moment with my daughter. She was only six at the time. And I didn't want her to ever think that my hair defined who I was. And so I, we made it a silly moment. She helped shave my head. We took lots of pictures. Um, And I think that was empowering for me. And it was, I hope, empowering for her to just see me do that and to be a part of that. And I hope someday she looks back on that and, you know, just looks at that moment as um, just a moment of, of strength, right? And not a moment of weakness, because that's what I wanted it to be for her. So I went through four rounds of chemo. And then I had a, a 
what they call a radical resection of my tumor in my upper arm. And basically it was a huge, what they call like a shark bite. If you can imagine a shark bite taken out of the upper, your upper arm, that's what it looked like. And they took my tumor and everything around it out, basically my entire deltoid muscle. And then a couple of weeks after that I had reconstruction, but it was simply to just close everything up. It still looked like a huge shark bite out of my arm. Um, and then after that, I went through, I think 30 radiation treatments every day, um, five days a week. So that was intense. It was 2017 started with the birth of my son on the floor and turned into a year of pure craziness. Something else I just want to point out is you're doing all of this while caring for four children under the age of six. Right. So and how did you get through that? Uh, number one, my friends and my family, I could not have done that without the support. Um, my community, I mean, the people are good. People are good. And they, they come out of the woodworks when someone is struggling or going through something. And, you know, they, people, my mom and my dad and my husband's parents and our sisters and brother-in-laws, I mean, my kids did not miss a beat. They, they, they went everywhere they needed to go. They got there. And I was just like, I feel like I was like in a fog for that entire year, just sort of watching things happen. And I did my best to be a part of everything that I could be a part of. I went everywhere that I could to all their sporting events, but I could not have done it without my husband. I could not have done it without our parents and our friends and our family and our community. It, it was amazing. The support that we had. In some ways, do you feel like the kids and everything you needed to do for them and with them kind of spurred you on or helped you through the treatment? Absolutely. I think that they're, they were my motivation and they um, kept me going because it would have been very easy and I was exhausted and I was mentally exhausted. I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted and it would have been really easy to just shut down. And that's what your body and your mind wants to do is shut down. But I had these four little kids, right? And they, you know, my two of them were home um, full time and, you know, they're mommy, 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 every time I could be a part of anything. And sometimes that was simply sitting on the floor while they played a game with my mom, but I was there and I was present and I tried to be as present as I could in every moment that I could. And I, and they understood that not that I was sick, but that I was fighting and that I was getting better. And that's how we kind of worded it to them is, you know, I have to take this medicine that's going to make me tired and it's going to make me sick, but it's going to make me better. And we kind of, we just kept focusing on, I'm getting better. You know, I'm going to lose my hair, but, but that's because the medicine is helping to fight this, you know, crazy cancer and it's going to make me better. And so, yeah, they were definitely my motivation As, and, you know, especially my baby, you know, I, I was like, I'm not missing these moments. You can't miss those moments of their first year. And so I did whatever I had to do to be present. It had to be so scary for your husband, Ben, during that time as well. Yes. I think that he put on this armor, if you will, of strength. And he, he stepped into, um, a dad role that turned that meshed into a mom and dad role all combined. Um, but I know he was scared. He was scared of lots of things, you know, scared of losing me, scared of what life would look like if I wasn't here, 
scared of every treatment that I had to go through and what it was doing to me. But I can tell you that he is the, with a capital T H E, the strongest man I have ever met in my entire life. And he also is really funny and he makes me laugh. And there were days where I felt like I didn't even have enough energy to open my eyes, but yet somehow I had enough energy to laugh at him because he says things that just make me laugh. And I could not have done any of it without him. He was so strong, even through the fear, he was so strong and he really kind of pressed into his faith during that time and just had to lean on that because he knew that he had a big role. And, you know, he always jokes and says it was harder on him than it was on me because you know, he was taking care of everyone, but also trying to take care of me and trying to, you know, stay positive for me and also have hope that I was going to be okay. And at the same time, he's got a pretty big business that he's running, right? Yeah. So he, when my, when our son, second son was born, he started um, a business design entertainment in Perrysburg. And so, you know, it's a half hour from our house. He's trying to, you know, this is uh, you know, just a couple years into his business. And, um, you know, we're so thankful that he had done that because he was with me every single step of the way. And I know in a, you know, regular job that he would not have had the time to be able to step away and to be there with me. Um, so I'm so thankful for his partners, his business partners, and for them just kind of filling in the gap when needed. And they never, questioned, you know, they said, go, go, go be with her. They never questioned it. And I I know that a lot of people don't have that. And and because of their job, they're not able to do that. So I am so thankful that he had his own business and that he was able to step away when he needed to and work when he could, you know, there were many times where he was working from my chemo room or working from, you know, home because I needed him to be here with me. and, And so that was a huge blessing. Well, I will say that um, during the Victory Center Fashion Show in 2020, in February of 2020, so this was right before things shut down because of the pandemic, um, you were a speaker there, and I'm going to get back to that in a moment, but at the end of your speech, Ben, and listen, this is 600 people in a room, and maybe 1% of the attendees are men, maybe not even that many, and here comes Ben with this beautiful bouquet of roses, and he's just hugging you and kissing you at the end of your remarks, and he won over every single woman's heart in that room at that time. It was pretty incredible. He's all mine, ladies. He's all mine. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're not sharing. That's right. No, no, no. Sharing, Ben. But I want to go back to the fact that you were the featured speaker there. And why have you been so open and honest about sharing your story, your cancer diagnosis to this point? You know, for me, I am a, I'm an outgoing person by nature. Um, And for me, I know that a lot of people don't like to share. They, They kind of have to get through things by keep, you know, with their close family and friends. For me, I felt so much love and so much support by sharing my story. And I, I, you know, I felt honestly, once I came to terms with the fact that I had cancer, I really, there was a moment where I was, you know, uh, just kind of in a quiet time with God. 
And I really felt like he told me that I needed to share my story and not just share my story with, you know, my family and my friends and somebody that I might, you know, have lunch with here and there, but to share my story. And because I felt like he was telling me like my story can help someone else. It maybe can inspire someone else. It maybe can help someone else through a trial that they're going through. Maybe not a cancer, maybe not a cancer diagnosis, but something completely different. And my faith and the way that I was, you know, am and was open with my faith and my fears and my worries. And, you know, you can have a strong faith and still be fearful and you can have a strong faith and still worry about things and be scared, but you have to come full circle and you have to come back to leaning on your faith and leaning on, you know, for me, I lean on God and I lean on the fact that he's going to walk with me every step of the way. And he is never going to leave my side. And so even when I feel like I have no idea what tomorrow brings, he knows. And, and I find comfort in that knowing that he knows and I can find peace and, you know, hopefully my story by sharing it on such a wide scale, whether it be at the victory center or on my Facebook page or whatever, Hopefully it can, you know, help to inspire someone else or help walk them through a trial that they're going through. Well, the story doesn't end there, obviously. Um, You know, you went through your diagnosis, you went through your treatment, your hair has grown back. um, You've had a moment of being able to just breathe and have some normalcy in your life. And the cancer came back. Yeah. So, um, I was originally diagnosed in 2017, like I said, and then I, I went through all my treatments and then I had a year, 2018, that was a year of great news, right? Like nothing really crazy happened. Um, but then in 2019, about two years after my original diagnosis, a little bit more, I found out they, they had been monitoring everything and doing scans and they found a small tumor, um, kind of like more towards, uh, my armpit and it wasn't in my lymph nodes area, but they ended up, um, doing another surgery and they took out all my lymph nodes on that side. And they also took out that small tumor, um, which was, um, in fact, a recurrence of my myxofibrosarcoma. And so I had to go through, um, not chemo again, because it was just a small area and, um, they didn't think that chemo was necessary at that time. So, um, I went through another 35 rounds of radiation at the time and then everything was clear last year in the beginning of 2020, the beginning of the summer, I had another routine scan and they found two small areas, um, one in the bed of my original tumor and then one in the bed of my second tumor site. And they were really small and they said, we don't know what this is. It could be scar tissue, but we want to watch it really closely. Um, You know, basically enjoy your summer and we'll scan everything again at the end of summer. So I lived, I lived my life last summer. I did everything that I wanted to do. Um, No regrets because I didn't know what was about to happen. And, and we just want to point out this is so this is pandemic summer, right? This is where a lot of people are kind of staying inside and not going, you know, a lot of places. And you were just determined that you were going to have these experiences with your family and your friends. Yeah. And, you know, I think the pandemic sort of taught us all like um, what's important and that you can have fun and you can explore and you can do 
you know, these things, you don't, it, 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 it may look different, but you can still do these fun experiences. You know, we did a lot of hiking that we had never really done before. And, you know, we did a lot of picnics that we had never really done before. And so, yeah, you, you have to get creative. And, you know, I think everyone sort of learned ways to get creative, to get out of their house and to have fun moments, but yet um, to stay safe at the same time. In August, you had another doctor's appointment uh, in 2020 and made some pretty drastic decisions there. Yeah. So they repeated my MRI in August and uh, they basically came back to me and said, uh, these are definitely um, a recurrence again. They biopsied them to confirm, but of course they were. So that was my, um, you know, third time having cancer, my second recurrence of this cancer. And this is an aggressive type of cancer that is really hard to get rid of, as you can tell. Um, and it often spreads throughout your body. So at this time, this had been three and a half years of battling this cancer and it had stayed contained basically in my arm, right? Um, in my armpit, in my left arm. And so that was huge. So, you know, it had not figured out how to travel into my body yet, as far as we could tell. And so they met as a team and I got the phone call and I, I, she didn't even have to say the words. I knew I had honestly been preparing myself. Um, like I said earlier in our conversation from day one, I said, if you have to cut my arm off, cut my arm off, if that's going to help me to live. And so my doctor called me and she said, our recommendation is um, what's called a four quarter amputation of your left arm. And it's not just your arm, it's your arm, your shoulder, your scapula and your clavicle. They take everything because basically they had to get everything out of my armpit as well. And nah, you never want to hear someone tell you basically your best chance at living is to cut your entire arm off. And that's what I heard that day. Um, and so I had to call my husband, tell him to come home and share the news with him. I feel like I was in a, a better place at that time. I feel like my husband had a harder time with that, um, news. You know, we, we, we had gotten a lot of bad news in our life, but this was tough. Um, really tough, but I feel like I had been preparing myself from the very beginning. I, I felt like I knew it would come to this at some point. I don't know why. And it didn't not to say that it wasn't very difficult to deal with, but, um, I just said, I have to live. I have four little kids. I have to live. So you had the phone conversation with the doctor and, uh, how long until you were actually walking in the hospital to get the amputation surgery? Uh, yeah. So like in a week's time, I had the conversation with my doctor. I had the, uh, uh meeting with my surgeon, um, here uh, or at U of M. And I flew to New York with my husband for a day. Um, and we met with a surgeon there who basically said, uh, absolutely, this would be my recommendation as well, which is what we needed to hear. If, if she had said something different, that would have been probably more difficult because then you have to make a decision. Um, and for us, you know, we sat in Central Park in New York City after we walked out of the doctor's office. And we didn't say anything for a really long time. We just sort of sat there and cried. And um, I, I finally, I have to tell you this because this is my husband in a nutshell. 
And I finally said to him, just say something like you have to say something. This is happening. I have to do this, like say something. And he said, do you think all those people who wrote in your yearbook don't ever change are going to be upset with you? (laughs) And I was like, where in the world did that come from? (laughs) I'm like, I'm telling you to say something. And that's what you say. Like you're, you're, you're going to make a joke about people in my yearbook that said, don't ever change. But again, here we are in central park now crying like laughing tears because that's what he does. Right. Like in the worst of the worst moments, he makes a joke and made me laugh and he made me laugh really, really hard. So doesn't take away from how difficult it was, but he did make me laugh in that moment. So yeah, within about a week and a half of finding out that um, my cancer was back and hearing this recommendation of a four quarter amputation on September 8th, I was walking into, well, driving myself to the hospital to basically have my arm cut off. And I think one of the, one of the hardest moments for Ben and I was when we got there, um, we pulled in and we parked and we just froze. We just sat there and music was playing and I literally like crawled up on his lap and I just hugged him. And it was a moment of like, how do you walk? How do you get out of the car? Like, I remember we both just said like, we can't, I can't do this. Like, how do you get out of the car and walk yourself into a hospital for them to cut your entire arm off? Mm -hmm. And so we just sat there and we really, we froze for probably a good 10 minutes And I don't know, I don't know how, what happened, but we finally got out and we, and we walked, you know, hand in hand, we walked into the hospital and it was tough. It was really tough. Um, because you're, you're going into something that, you know, the out, you know, the outcome and you know, the outcome is going to be drastic. Um, but yet you still know that you have to do it you didn't really have that much time to prepare or think about it either. You know, a week and a half is not a long time to prepare yourself for what might be ahead. So the surgery went well. Yeah. Um, you know, you would think that getting your entire arm cut off would be the most painful thing in the world, but, um, I mean, I have a high pain tolerance anyways, but it was not bad. I, I felt like, you know, once I, came out of surgery and I woke up and, um, everything started wearing off. I just said like, I'm okay. Like, and it's still me. I think everyone was so, you know, like my family and my friends, like they just didn't know what to expect. And so I think, you know, my Ben seeing me for the first time and just realizing it's still me, like I'm still the same person. I just have one arm now. And that that was, you know, there were moments with like each of our family members and our parents and our friends just, you know, seeing me for the first time. And they just kept, I I remember they all just kept saying like, it's so crazy. Like, it's just you. It's still just you. You just have one arm now. One other thing I do want to kind of talk about very quickly though, is just um, challenges and obstacles you've seen since you had your arm amputated? 
you know, I just said from day one, I am going to figure out how to do things. I'm a very motivated, very determined person. And there are definitely challenges. There are a lot of tools and there are a lot of um, utensils and whatever you want to call them out there. So I had um, lots of gifts from people. I searched and found lots of things myself. So I do things in a different way. But um, I've learned to do pretty much anything. Um, For example, zipping a coat. Very difficult with one arm. There's something called a mag zip that magnetize, like the bottom magnets together. And then you can like lean against something to hold it down and just zip it up from there. So I got a, um, a coat that my friend bought for me with a mag zip. So that has changed my life. Um, but still difficult to like zip my kids coats if they need their coat zipped. So luckily I have four and they um, help each other. I have figured out how to tie shoes with one hand. It takes a really long time, but I can do it. I, I can, I figured out how to do it. Um, but I definitely try to get my kids to tie their own shoes because we would be late for school every day if they did it. Writing is very difficult because when you move the pen, the whole paper moves. Um, so I oftentimes put like, um, uh, like gorilla, I have like a square of gorilla grip. So I'll put like a square of gorilla grip down and then a clipboard on top of that. And I'll put my paper in the clipboard if I'm going to be writing for like a bigger, you know, a longer thing. And then I can write and it kind of stays in place. So that is like a tool, you know, not necessarily a tool, but something that I've learned helps me. If I'm writing something really quickly, I often just lean my chin down and hold my chin on the corner of the paper. And like, if I just have to sign my kid's paper real quick, I don't want to get everything out. So I'll just use my chin and brace the paper. Cutting things, um, meat is like difficult, uh, but I have something called a rocker knife and it's amazing. I think everyone should have one, even if you have two hands. And so I'm able to cut anything I want with that. I have a special cutting board that holds the vegetables for me. It has spikes coming up. So yeah, I I have found ways to do things. I think you have become at this point kind of a, um, I don't want to say a master of grieving, but you know, you have gone through many experiences in your life where you have had to grieve different things, whether it was the loss of children or hearing your cancer diagnosis for the first time. Is there a grieving process that you went through for your arm? I think before my surgery, I probably had, you know, very short period of grieving, right? Because I didn't have a lot of time, like you said, to even process everything. Um, But I definitely, before my surgery, I definitely was grieving what was to come. And I was grieving the loss of my arm, if you will. And I was, I was going through the emotions of what that was going to look like, feel like how I was going to function, how I was going to do things. Um, I think, you know, the last thing I did before I left the house was I gave each of my kids the biggest two armed hug I could ever give them because I knew it was the last time. And, you know, that's like one of there's little things that get me right. Like thinking about that moment brings me to tears, just hugging them because that was something they said to me, how are you going to hug us anymore? And I said, Oh, I'll figure out a way, but I still wanted to hold on to that moment of that. Um, you know, that last big bear hug where I could wrap both my arms around them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely grieved things, I think, not necessarily my arm, but things that I was not going to be able to do after I had my amputation. 
But after surgery, I don't, I really haven't grieved that anymore. I just really, I shifted my mindset. As soon as I said, this is going to happen, I shifted my mindset to, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to wake up every day. I'm going to choose to be positive. It's a choice. Very, very easily. I could wake up any day and go down in the rabbit hole, like I like to say. Um, but every day I have to make a conscious choice that I'm going to choose joy. I have a lot of things in my life that bring me joy and I have to choose joy and I have to choose to be positive and I have to choose to have hope. And my faith helps me, um, do all of, all of those things every day. And it's not to say that there aren't hard days or hard moments, but it's a conscious choice every single day to wake up and say like, I'm going to make the most of today. Do you feel like your previous experiences and all of those other moments prepared you in some way for this moment? A hundred percent. I look back at everything that we had been through and I look at Ben and I's relationship and how that grew and how we, we are a different couple because of what we've been through and for the good. We have you know, it drew us closer. And I know it doesn't do that for everyone. And I'm so thankful that we were able to draw closer through everything. I look at just, just life and, and really like after everything we've been through, like it really helps you focus on what's important. And I think, you know, there are definitely days where I am focused on things that aren't important, but I, I, I snap myself out of it. I try to snap myself out of it and say like, what is, what is really important in life? And for me, I always say my three F's, my faith, my family, and my friends, and nothing else really matters at the end of the day. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that it shaped me into a much stronger person. I think that it helped me grow my faith to the point where I could, um, you know, have a strong enough faith to get through something like this. Um, I think that when you go through trials, you become stronger. And I think it made us really, really um, strong. And we were able to use that strength to get through this trial. It's so inspiring when I see you, when I talk with you, I'm just so grateful and glad that you have come into my life because I just feel like I get so much from you, Amy, every time that we talk and, and I hear more about your story, but just your positive attitude about things. Do you have, when you talk to people, is there any piece of advice, any suggestion that you give to people or could give to people who might be going through a trauma, whether it's the loss of a child or hearing a cancer diagnosis or having some kind of, you know, disfiguring surgery, uh, any, any of those things you've gone through to help them kind of prepare and keep that inspiring attitude. I mean, I just, you know, you, I, I think it would be real easy for somebody with any one of those things happening in their life to just maybe curl up in a ball and not really talk about it and not deal with things the way that you have dealt with things. I see that. I feel that every day I could definitely curl up in a ball some days and, you know, but you have to push on. I think for me, I would, I, I tell people to, you have to have a strong faith and trust in the Lord and you really have to lean on your faith. And ha that's where the hope comes from. That's where the hope of each next day comes from. You have to lean on others. People have a, a really hard time asking for help or allowing others to come in, um, not, just, not just 
physically help, you know, not just physical help around the house and meals and things like that, but also emotionally, like, you know, you need to lean on others and you, and you need to have, find your person, even if it's one person or your group of people or, you know, whatever it looks like for you. For me, it's a huge community of people, right? But for some people, it's one or two people. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to find someone that you can talk to and that you can lean on and that you can trust and that you can share your feelings with, because if you hold them in, it's, it's really difficult. And I think for me, sharing my story is part of my therapy. It's part of my way of, you know, working through all my feelings and all my trials in my life is for me, sharing that on a big scale helps me. It's, it, it, it helps me kind of, you know, go through those trials and it helps me heal. And I, what I always tell people is one day at a time, we have no idea what a year, five years, 10 years is going to bring. We have no idea. Look at the pandemic, right? Like no one knows what's going to happen. And so I just really, really try to focus on one day at a time. God gives us strength for each day, no more, no less. And I try to focus on each day um, and make the most of each day because we don't know, we don't, life is unpredictable and we don't know what tomorrow brings. So one day at a time, if you focus on one day at a time, you don't need as much strength, right? And so it's it's when we focus on all the days of the future that it starts to feel like too much. We have the strength to get through today, but if we focus on more than that, it, it feels like too much. That's when it piles on. And so you just have to say, I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Listening to Amy's story gives me goosebumps. To see how she's taken so many tragedies and turned them into triumphs is truly inspiring. I especially love her philosophy that our challenges aren't roadblocks, but rather detours that just take our lives in another direction. We have immeasurable strength within us, and if we can learn to harness that in moments of tragedy, we can move forward in triumph. And guess what? Amy has been accepted as a patient in the Arms for All Foundation. This organization helps pay for prosthetic limbs, and the doctors there were so moved by Amy's story, they accepted her as one of their first two patients. Amy has been fitted for a new state-of-the-art robotic arm. She's also writing a book about her experiences, and if you'd like to follow Amy's story, she has a page on Facebook called Amy's Army. Check her out. I put the link on the website for you to connect. Thanks for listening. I hope you were as inspired as I am by Amy's journey. If so, please do share the podcast and subscribe. I have many more amazing stories to share with you in just a moment.